Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Few things are harder to put up with, wrote Mark Twain, than the annoyance of a good example. Perhaps the thing most annoying about a good example is its inability to accomplish the same achievements in our own lives. Admiration for a good person it can inspire us, for sure, but it cannot enable us. Unless the person, and hear this now, unless the person can enter into our own lives and share their skills, we we cannot attain to their heights of accomplishment. It takes more than an example on the outside. It takes power on the inside. Would you agree? Yeah. We've all been alive long enough, right, to, to know that that's pretty true. Now, Paul has just presented Jesus Christ As our great example of selfless humility, we read it, we agree with it, but how do we go about practicing it and living it? We we saw that last week in the first part of Philippians chapter 2, where we have that, what has been really referred to as a hymn, is just telling the God story from verses 6 to 11, that is to become our story. The story of God is the story of his giving his son, the sacrifice there so that we might have live, have life. So that is what we're referring to, that selfless humility. Again, we read about it in the first part of chapter 2. We even would agree with it, but how do we get there? How do we do it? How could anyone ever hope to achieve what Jesus achieved? Think about it. It seems sometimes if you really think about it a little bit, it would kind of come across as somewhat presumptuous that we dare even try (laughs) to be like Jesus. Nevertheless, it is the Apostle Paul who is not asking us here in this second chapter of Philippians to reach for the stars on our own power, on our own ability. Rather, he is setting before us a divine pattern. For the submissive mind and heart, and then therefore the divine power to accomplish what God has commanded us to do. Okay? That's good news. (laughs) Which means then that we're not left on our own, right, to, to do this. Paul tells us here that it is God who works in you. The imitating becomes possible only because of the indwelling, meaning it is Christ living inside of you and inside of me. Listen to what Paul wrote to the people of Galatia in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life 
is not a series of ups and downs. I know sometimes it kind of feels that way and kind of looks like that. But really, from a Christian perspective, it's not about ups and downs. You know what it is? It's about ins and outs. What do I mean? Just what Paul's told us. God working in and are working it out. Working what out? What he has put in. Jesus and the ability to be transformed into his image, taking on his character, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. We develop, we cultivate the submissive mind and heart, the life of selfless humility by responding to the divine provisions that God so beautifully makes available to every single one of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul exhorted his audience, which obviously includes us, to conform to the example of Christ, he wanted them to have a radical new attitude. Imagine that. A radical new attitude. This new attitude would not lead to an earthly perfection, but does and will lead to, towards an eternal perfection. When we are with him in his presence forever in heaven. And the long and the result of that because of a long, long process of working out our salvation. Working out what God is putting in, okay? Also known as the process of sanctification. It's a life that is headed in the direction of the obedience of Christ, but fully dependent on the inner work of the Holy Spirit to actively lead us in this journey of faith. And so here in chapter 2 of Philippians, we're going to be concentrating on verses 12 through 18. It shows us what it looks like. This is so encouraging. It shows us what it looks like to work out that inner working of the Holy Spirit within us. This passage, again, so encouraging because it presents the balance between our natural condition in which Christ-like obedience left on our own and in our own power is pretty much impossible. But it also then brings... To us the picture and the possibility of the supernatural inner work of God which enables us to go all out to be all in for Christ's likeness okay so let's pick it up at verse 12 and read the first couple of verses there 12 and 13 therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, if you were just to take a quick look at verse 12, just kind of do a quick reading of it with not a, with not a whole lot of thought, one might could conclude that Paul is suggesting that we need to work hard to earn our own salvation and to make matters worse, that we should be shaking in our boots 
for fear that we might not be doing enough. Interestingly, if Paul had gone straight from verse 12, bypassed verse 13, never even wrote it, gone to verse 14, we might be under the impression that Christ-likeness is entirely up to us. That God did his part by giving us the example of Jesus, and now we're to do the hard part of trying to imitate him here in this life on this planet in our own power. But this would lead to a totally false conclusion because that is not what it is saying. It is not what Paul is talking about. We've got to remember that Paul's readers are authentic, born-again believers. Okay, They are in Christ Jesus. God has already begun a good work in them. And he is already, as we saw earlier in this study, committed to them that he's going to complete the work that he started in them. Good news. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul wrote, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's good news, isn't it? And, and in fact, all the way till Christ's return. So this notion of working out there the Philippians are, salvation is not meant to suggest that they are to work for their salvation. Paul never said here, work for your salvation. He never said, work on your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. So what does it mean? What does that look like to work out our salvation? Well, I think we can better understand what Paul means by reminding ourselves of the broader context of this letter. What is Paul urging us here in chapter 2? He begins by exhorting his readers, as we saw last week, be like-minded in unity, in his love, God's love, and in purposefulness, along with the avoidance of selfishness and vain, prideful conceit, as Christ himself had demonstrated, as we saw. The verb here, work out, in the Greek carries the meaning of work to full completion. In other words, not half-hearted, not half-done. It actually is a problem, uh, this kind of working is with the idea of working out a problem like in mathematics. And so, for example, you might put on a piece of paper two plus two equals and then leave it, <laughs> not complete it. That's what this is saying. God's completed, God is committed to completing it, and he's asking us to come alongside him in faith and be a part of that in working out our salvation, doing our part. And so in also in Paul's day, this term here, work out, was also used for referring to working in a mine, like a gold mine or a silver mine or an ore mine. Okay. In other words, to mine out of that mine all of its valuable resources, completing, not leaving it half done. It also referred to working in a field as so as to get the, the greatest harvest possible. I love that analogy because God is wanting that from us, isn't he? 
to get from us the greatest harvest possible, that from us we be like really super fruitful trees, <laughs> hanging on as all kinds of great fruit, love and joy and peace and self-control and humility and all of these kinds of things. So the purpose God wants us to achieve is obviously then Christ-likeness. Church, he's saying to us, this needs to come down to the world seeing a little, little, and little, and little less of you, and a little more, and a little more, and a little more of Jesus in our lives. Wow. To be conformed to the image of his son, in other words. Paul told us in Romans 8, 29. And so problems exist in our lives, right? We know that. Every single one of us have got our stuff. Problems exist in our lives, but God is still committed to helping us work those out. Please don't miss this. This is what a, how awesome is our God. He works in what we need to get what doesn't belong out. And he continues to be committed to us to help us work that salvation out. As he's given to us the Holy Spirit. Wow. So then the Philippians... And us are to work out their salvation. We are to work out ours, not in the sense of earning it, but rather by expressing our lives being an expression of the reality of our salvation. Are you saved? Does Jesus live in your life? How is that being expressed? Is the world just seeing you, or are they seeing Jesus? Rather than by expressing the reality of their salvation through us expressing that, the expression of that, through how? Our practical obedience to Jesus, to his word, along with selfless humility. And there it is. But recognizing our inability to practice this kind of Christ-likeness, this kind of obedience in and of our own strength and power on our own, thankfully Paul explains to us how Christian obedience can actually work and happen. It's like Paul removes the access panel from the from the Christian life so that we can catch a glimpse of what it looks like with the Holy Spirit that is within us working and moving. Picture that. I love that illustration as well, that picture that, that we're being given here. Kind of open that door, open that access panel and see the Holy Spirit working, connecting that dot and connecting this dot and this one over here and the result being Christ-likeness. Again, less of us, more of Him in our lives. So He removes that panel so that we can see and catch a glimpse of the inner working that God is doing that would otherwise remain unseen to us. This helps us get there and see it. We're able to work out this salvation in real obedience to God himself. 
because of God himself, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. For it is, after all, as we have seen here, God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Another translation uses the word his good pleasure. I like that. This isn't about us and our wanting and going after that which pleases us only, but going after that which pleases our God. So we're able to work out this salvation in real obedience because of God, because He's in us. How do you not love? And how do you not want to serve a God like this? I ask. As we submit ourselves to the working of His Spirit, He gives us both the desire and the power to accomplish His will. That's a win-win, isn't it? That is like how we sang today, a good God. (laughs) He does His invisible work in us by His grace. We simply do what He has asked us to do, what He has commanded us to do through His Word. If we could see the invisible inner working of God with our own eyes, I kind of think that it would, for lack of a better way of saying it, take our breath away because it would be so awesome and so amazing. He is the determined one. He is the one at work. He is the one empowering us to do the otherwise impossible. Amen? It is not our spirit that somehow self-motivates us and perpetuates obedience of our own. No, it is the spirit of Christ working within us to make us into the people he wants us to be. And so, folks, hopefully, hopefully, you see the extreme importance of doing what we say around here quite often seems like lately. Getting ourselves out of the way. And how, oh, how important that is. Let's read on, picking it up at verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And you're thinking, right. (laughs) So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Paul contrasts, which is what he's doing here, the life of the believer with the lives of those who live in the world, the unsaved. The unsaved is what he has in mind when he says do everything without doing what the unsaved do, grumbling and arguing. Are you seeing the contrast? It's kind of like Paul is saying that is how they are. We understand that. But by contrast, he is saying, without really actually saying it, don't be like they are. 
We are not to look like them, act like them, live like them. That's how we used to be before Christ was within us. Amen? He says, now you're to be different. Now you are to display Jesus. Not those old characteristics, new ones. New ones that come with Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying to us here. Don't be like them. Don't be the grumbling, argumentative one, but rather, as a follower of Christ, be caring, compassionate, encouraging, and joyful. The world is dark. Would you agree? It's a dark world we live in. And Paul uses the terminology here, warped and crooked. That word crooked in the original language is a word that we get our word scoliosis from. Curvature of the spine. Crooked. But he refers to here, and the idea is that as believers, we are not to stand crooked and warped in darkness, but straight, upright, in the light bringing light to a dark world, and as he says, to the point where we are shining like the stars in the sky. Wow. The world has nothing to offer, but as followers of Christ, we hold out hope and possibilities because of the word of life that we are to believe and live. The word of life is the message of salvation that comes through faith in Christ, providing people with a glimpse of good living and what living for God looks like. Carrying the light-giving message out into the night of this dark world. So it is important to note that this purpose is achieved, notice with me, in the midst of a crooked Warped and crooked generation. In the midst of that, Paul does not admonish us to retreat from the world and go to some kind of seclusion. That's not what he were being encouraged to do. It is only as we are confronted with the needs and the problems of real life that we can bring the light of Jesus Christ. And bring others to, to that kind of salvation and that kind of knowledge. It is because of us being in the world, not of the world, displaying Jesus, pushing back the darkness, that we become more like Christ. The contrast becoming even brighter and brighter and brighter from what we used to be to who we are to be now in Christ Jesus. Consider with me for a moment the Pharisees back in Jesus' time. They were so isolated and they were so insulated from reality that they developed an artificial kind of self-righteousness that was totally unlike the righteousness that God really was wanting from them. So consequently, the Pharisees forced a religion of fear a religion of bondage onto the people. If you were to read Matthew chapter 23, you would see what I was talking about. Seven times in that chapter, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, seven times he says, woe to you. And it is in that chapter he refers to those Pharisees as a brood of vipers. 
And so what did they do? What was their response? They crucified the one who was sent to them to save them from the false religion that they had produced. It's not by checking out on the world, but by ministering to it that we see God's purposes fulfilled in our lives. Let's be reminded this morning of what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it into a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good deeds. And then as a result of that, glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, folks, not only did Jesus say it, but he lived it, right? And here's the deal. Here's the deal. He wants to continue living it and shining it through you and through me. Wow. Let's pick up on the rest of verse 16. He says, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you, too, should be glad and rejoice with me. As was mentioned last week, Paul is writing this letter while under house arrest in Rome. He doesn't know what's coming his way. He does, really is not sure what the next day will bring. It could possibly be an execution. There is a chance that he will give his life for the sake of the gospel message and for the sake of others. That's still looming out there on him. And so you could say that Paul's kind of got two options. The first we'll consider as from a human perspective, okay? Option one, he could think about what might have been as he sits there chained to a couple of Roman soldiers. What might have been the life that he could have had? An easy life with a nine-to-five job, a wife and some kids, and maybe even a couple of pets. He could think about the success he may have had or the money he might have made. He, he could go there, or he could go with a second option, what we'll refer to more of a heavenly perspective, Christ-like perspective. He could look at his life in terms of eternity. in terms of what he has accomplished and what God has done in and through his life, the lives that have been touched, things that will last forever, things that will, a line from a popular movie, echo in eternity. What do you want for you? 
Paul chose the path of finding joy. And you know where he found it? The same place you and I need to find it. The only place we will really find it. And that is in sacrificial living. That's where Paul found it. He said, if I have to suffer a little for the good of others, sign me up. I'm all in. I'll do it. Here's what he said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When the Philippians truly lived out the reality of the inner work of the Holy Spirit in both joyful attitudes and faithful actions and service, Paul would be able to see a positive return on his serving investment. And in his case, of blood, sweat, and tears on their behalf. Sacrificial living. Paul's ongoing concern for all the churches that he had planted is that he not be like the runner, as we read here, whose endless hours of training achieved absolutely nothing, or like the laborer whose exhausting work produced no results. Instead, Paul prays that his labor will positively impact the Philippians' ongoing Christ-like sacrificial service to their God. The world's philosophy is if you want to be happy, you've got to fight everybody to get what you want in order to be happy. Jesus' life is evidence enough that they are dead wrong. Dead wrong. He never used a sword or any other kind of weapon, yet he won the greatest battle in history. The battle against sin and against death and against hell. He defeated hatred by demonstrating love. He overcame lies with truth. And because he surrendered, he became victorious. And he's wanting us to know the same is available to you and me. If we but get ourselves out of the way. And let Jesus come and rule and reign within us. The faithful follower of Christ will discover that their sufferings on earth have been transformed into glory in heaven. They will see that their work was not in vain. It was this same kind of promise, actually of future joy that helped Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 lets us know that helped him in his sufferings while on the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But here's some good news, folks. We do not have to wait until Christ's return to begin experiencing the kind of joy that comes to us through selfless humility and sacrificial living. That joy is a present reality. It really is. And it comes through sacrifice and service. It is remarkable 
I don't know if you saw this here or caught this, that in these two verses, verses 17 and 18, that talk about and discuss sacrifice and selflessness and all those kinds of things. It's interesting to me that in these two verses, Paul uses two words that you ordinarily, you and I perhaps, would not use in a discussion of sacrifice or suffering. And the words are glad and rejoice. In fact, to bring emphasis, he repeats them. Says them in 17, repeats them in 18. Glad and rejoice. Most people would associate sorrow with sacrifice or suffering, but Paul sees both of them as doorways to a deeper joy in Christ. In verse 17, Paul is comparing his experience of sacrifice to that of the Old Testament priests. If you're wondering what that is all about, it was an Old Testament practice that the priests would do as they would have a sacrifice in those sacrifices that they were instructed to do. Also, they would do what was referred to as a drink offering sacrifice poured onto the altar as well unto the Lord. And so Paul is saying here, it could be even as if I am called on to make my own life like a drink offering poured out onto the altar, so, so be it as unto the Lord. But here's the deal. This did not rob Paul of any joy whatsoever. Even though tomorrow could mean a beheading, which eventually did. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't put a dent at all in his joy. He's willing. He's all in. He's going to go the distance because he understands that Christ is committed to him to get it done, and he's going to do his part in that process of working out the salvation as we all are to do as well. It takes faith to live a life in selfless humility. How many found out that just doesn't kind of come natural to us? takes faith to do that. We must believe God's promises are true and that they are going to work in our lives just as they worked in Paul's life. we got to believe that. What God did for Paul and in Paul, he wants to do in and through you and me. God works in us through the Spirit, His Word, and prayer. And we work it out in daily sacrificial living and service. God fulfills His purposes in us as we receive and believe His Word. Life is not a series, as I said in the beginning of this message this morning, a series of disappointing ups and downs. Rather, it is a sequence of amazing ins and outs. God works it in and we work it out. The example comes from Christ. The energy comes from the Holy Spirit within. The result, joy, joy, joy. Now you can be sure of this. And I'm thinking you probably have already found this to be true. You will be called upon in your life to make sacrifices 
right? We are. If you're a parent, yeah, I know about that one. If you're just a human being alive on the planet, yeah, I know that one. We are called upon to make sacrifices. Sacrifices at work. Sacrifices in your relationships. Sacrifices in your walk with God. There will be times when you will be called on to, to give in some way, shape, or form so that others can reap a benefit from that. Now, here's the deal. You can be bummed out. <laughs> you can even get bitter about this truth or even about this passage in Philippians chapter 2 or you can find joy <laughs> and contentment <laughs> in it. And so may we all be encouraged to look at how our lives, our actions, and our work can be used to bring glory to God and benefit others. Someone once said, the best ability is availability. The best thing we can do is make ourselves available to God and His service. We are to make our life a mission for God, folks, not an intermission. Okay? The time to serve Him is while we can. Now is the watchword. Now ought to be the watchword for the wise follower of Christ. Live sacrificially for God now. Jesus would not let his followers begin their ministries unless they knew about the Holy Spirit. And he was going to take care of that situation. So we find them in Acts, in just in right after the resurrection, just before the ascension. That's kind of the place I'm referring to. And by that point... The disciples had spent already now three years in training with Jesus. They had seen the empty tomb. They had touched his resurrected body. They had spent 40 days listening to the resurrected Christ teach about the kingdom. But they needed more. They needed more, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus told them what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit comes with power, folks. That's the point of this. He comes and when he does, he doesn't come empty-handed, okay? <laughs> he comes with power. Power to make to help us make good choices, to keep promises, to silence the inner voices of fear and failure, power to get busy about doing the right things in the right way, God's way. Power. This is what Jesus promised then. It's what he continues to promise to us today. Power to get it done. So let's believe it. Let's receive it. Let's live it. And find that in the process, what Peter called an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
I think if I were to ask you to raise your hand, every single one of your hands would go up. Do you want an inexpressible joy? I think you would. Paul has just showed us how to get it. My question to you is, the Lord's question to you is, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Father, we come before you this morning and once again, thankful. Hopefully every single one of us thankful for your word, even when it tends to kind of ruffle the feathers of our lives, even when it brings conviction. But like I like to say, it, conviction is our friend. It's not a foe. Conviction is good. Your word does that. And that is a good thing. Your word also comes and encourages and brings truth that sets us free and brings that which we need to become more like Jesus. And so, God, I pray that perhaps for some of us, in a way that has never happened before, we take this seriously that you really are calling upon us to live differently. That we're to be different from the old us and we're to live like you, the new us, because you live within us. Is the world seeing you? Are they hearing you? Are they watching you when they see us? Help us, Lord, to live you. And we're not on our own in this. Paul has told us he has instructed us. He has encouraged us. We have the Spirit of God within us to empower us, to enable us to live that kind of life. And so, God, may it be less and less of us and more and more of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.